everyone, and happy Monday, and welcome to today's webinar titled A Deep Dive into A3 Thinking, aka part two of the previous webinar, How to Use A3 Thinking in Everyday Life. My name is Clint Corley. I'm an enterprise account executive at, at Kinexus. I will be your moderator for today. In a few moments, I'll be joined once again by our presenter and A3 expert, Jess Orr. I am stoked to continue our conversation on the topic of A3 thinking. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions during our first webinar on this topic. Hopefully, we will be able to answer everything you all submitted today, as well as any additional questions that may arise. I have the distinct privilege of, again, introducing our presenter today, Jess Orr. Jess, a big high five to you for coming back and answering more questions on A3 thinking. Jess is the founder of Yoka 10 Learning. She is currently a continuous improvement practitioner at Westrock, has over 10 years of industry experience, including time spent at Toyota, where she received the Toyota Business Practice Certification and two Six Sigma Black Belt certifications. She has a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Virginia Tech, loves applying A3 thinking in many aspects of her life. That is enough for me. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's hear from you. Take it away, Jess well, thank you, Clint. It is also a privilege for me to be hosting um, this webinar with you yet again, um, along with KaiNexus. Um, I was very pleased and excited about all the feedback we got after the first webinar on A3 Thinking. A lot of questions that we weren't able to get to, so we're going to try to address as many of those as we can today. And again, if you have any additional questions, something you want more clarity on, um, please go ahead and submit them. We will try to get to as many of them as we can at the end. So for those of you who haven't seen the first webinar on A3 thinking or aren't as familiar with A3s, um, in this webinar, we're gonna take a deeper dive into some of the questions that we got. So if you don't have context on A3s, some of this may seem a little bit confusing. So I recommend going back and seeing that first webinar or reading some of the resources on A3 thinking that we'll discuss at the end. But something that interested me as I was preparing to answer the questions for this webinar and doing some research and preparing the training materials, I found that I learned uh, quite a few things while I was doing the research. And I think that really goes to show that A3 thinking is something that's not a one and done in terms of learning. It's something that I've been doing this for, for 10 years, using A3s for almost as long, and I'm still learning about them too. So it's, it's part of a, the continuous learning journey, if you will. So what are we gonna talk about today? First thing that we're gonna do is just a very quick synopsis of what an A3 is and the benefits of using it. We'll go into, we had a lot of questions on when to use an A3 versus um, some of the simpler tools like Plan, Do, Check, Act, or some of the more complex tools like Demaic. So I thought I'd give you some kind of criteria for choosing which tool to use, as well as some real life examples of applications where you would use different um, types of methodologies. A lot of the questions about how to engage others in the process, and I was really happy to see the number of questions we got about that because, in my opinion, that is one of the most critical aspects of ensuring that the A3 solutions are successful and that they're sustained, is really getting that buy-in. So and how do we engage our leaders, too, if they're initially not supportive of the A3 process? How to avoid jumping to conclusions, human nature. So we'll talk a little bit about how to do a thorough root cause analysis. And um, we had some questions about the five whys. How do you know when to stop? 
some questions about the fishbone diagram. So I'll show you how to use one of those. And then also I want to talk about a technique that I use for brainstorming with my teams um, for both root cause identification and also countermeasures to those root causes. It can be used for either of those and both. So I'm glad to share that with you. Change management. So we've identified the improvements that we want to make. How are we going to successfully communicate those changes and handle resistance if and when, and I would say when because it almost always occurs, how do we help mitigate some of that and understand the root cause of that resistance? So the hardest part of any project, I would say, is sustaining the gains. How do we avoid sliding back into the condition that we were in before we started the A3 process? So we'll talk about promoting ownership. That's a word I like to use instead of accountability. And then also something that I use called a control plan. And that really helps with sustaining a lot of the gains that we make. Um, there we'll roll into our conclusion, just kind of summarize some of the key points from today. Clint will share some announcements with us and then we will go into the Q&A session. So with that, let's get started. So A3 thinking, it's a proven problem solving process. It's used across many industries with very good results. So this is kind of an industry standard when it comes to problem solving. And it's the basis of the Toyota business practices. So that's where I learned A3s. I've used them outside of Toyota since then. And I can say from personal experience and from hearing of the experience of others, they work very well when they're, when they're applied appropriately. A3 just refers to the size of the sheet of paper that's used, an 11 by 17. You don't have to use an 11 by 17. You can use an eight and a half by 11. Um, at my company, actually what we do is we've got this giant problem solving board. Um, it's a whiteboard so that people can write on it and collaborate around it and that works really well too. So adapt it, make it, make it work for you. So key point here, if you think that A3 is just a tool, you know, that you can use as a kind of a panacea or a solve it all, uh, that's not what it is. It, it's a guided thought process. It's much more than just a formula for success. It's used in many, many different applications from automotive, where I come from, to paper and packaging, where I am now, to software, to healthcare, transactional applications. The A3 is not just a manufacturing tool, even though that's where it originated. So benefits, so it's a very robust process. There's an emphasis on the team-based collaborative problem solving. So this is not a tool to use if you're a lone ranger or if you're a lone ranger like I started off, try to, you need to mitigate that. You need to bring the team in for this one. That's really the only way that it's going to be successful. You can't do an A3 by yourself in your office. It prioritizes a very deep understanding of the problem. So it uses something that we call slow thinking. So we're kind of as humans, we're naturally inclined to use our fast kind of jump to conclusions thinking, which is great when you're being chased by a saber toothed tiger, not so great when you're trying to solve a chronic issue that you've been having in your workplace. We're gonna go deep into the analysis to truly identify those root causes. And we're gonna to distinguish today between what we call a symptomatic root cause and an actual true root cause. So we'll talk about how to dive deeply and find those true root causes. For countermeasures, it's not something where we identify countermeasures, we say, this is it, we go out and apply them and hope that they work. That's not what we do at all with A3s. We use a very iterative PDCA cycle approach to those countermeasures. So we, we try them, we test them, we verify, we adapt, try again. And then finally, the A3s, one of the strengths of the A3s is there's a whole section on how we sustain the gains. So how do we continue to evaluate those results? 
how do we ensure that we have actions and owners in place to make sure that these gains are sustained? So those are really some of the primary benefits of A3 thinking. So just a very quick recap of the A3 process. Again, if you want more detail on this, check out some of the resources I list on the end, or I would encourage you to listen to the first webinar where we really go into these seven steps. The first thing that we're gonna do though is we're gonna define the problem, get our arms around it, make sure it's scoped appropriately. We're gonna go to the Gemba, understand where the problem is occurring, all of the aspects around the problem. We're gonna identify what is our current condition and key point here is that we want this to be quantifiable so that we know how to, how to measure whether or not we move the needle at the end. And we're gonna set our target. What's, what are we gonna call success at the end of this A3? Step three, we're gonna analyze for root causes of our problem. We're gonna spend a lot of time on steps one through three. I would say probably 60% of the A3 process is gonna be spent on these steps with about 40% on the remaining four steps. If you set it up correctly, if you go slow at this part, you're gonna set yourself up for success for the last four steps. So don't be afraid to slow down and make sure you get this right. Step four, we're gonna experiment with our countermeasures. So the team will have identified three to five countermeasures they think might work. We're gonna go test them out and evaluate using our change management um, practices that we'll talk about. And then we're gonna evaluate our results. So that metric that we, or a set of metrics that we identified in step two, in step five, we're gonna evaluate and say, hey, did we actually move the needle or not? I said there was gonna be a whole step around sustainment and here it is. So step six, we're gonna sustain those gains. What actions are we, countermeasures are we gonna put in place to make sure that we continue to sustain the improvements that we made during this A3 process? And then you won't see this on every A3, but step seven, reflect on the process. I, with every A3 I do, I learn something new, better way to approach it next time. So I like to reflect on what went well, you know, this was great, I'm gonna continue doing it this way next time, and what needs to be improved. So things that didn't go as well in the process. And every single time I run an A3, I've got a few things in that, what needs to be improved column. So I expect that, that most people will as well. So the first question that we had was around when to use an A3 versus other tools. And again, A3 is not a tool. Um, it's, a, it's a problem solving methodology, a process, but when do we use that set of processes versus some others? So I'm gonna reintroduce the problem complexity spectrum. So on the low end, you've got your kind of PDCA or just do it problem. So these problems are not very complex. You know, we, we know what the solution is. We have a good idea of what it is. We can just go do it. And I'll give you some examples of those in a minute. On the right-hand side, we've got our high complexity problems. So these are things where we need some more advanced tools, things like DMAIC, which is a Six Sigma based tool called, that stands for define, measure, analyze, improve, and control. DFSS is more of like, it's called Design for Six Sigma. So that's um, less trying to countermeasure an issue and more trying to design a process to begin with that's very robust. Design of experiments, another Six Sigma tool. And something even like Agile, there's plenty of other um, problem solving methods that can be used as well and developments of solutions. So key point, there really is no one best approach. So I can't say that DMAIC is better than A3 or vice versa. It really depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. So let's talk about some low complexity problems. So things to consider with these is that we generally have a good idea of what the solution is. Um, for example, we're having issues with reordering supplies. You know, we either reorder too much or too little. 
We have long lead times. How do we know the right quantities to order? That kind of thing. Kanban is probably, it's an industry proven tool that's probably going to work well in that situation. Don't necessarily need an A3. It's not necessarily going to hurt, um, but it's probably overkill for what you're trying to do. All right, these are low cost, low effort improvements. I would add low risk as well. Um, there's not a whole lot of uh, change management that's involved and not a lot of risk. So it's relatively straightforward improvements. And also straightforward is the sustainment. So it's going to be not that sustainment isn't critical, but it's really relatively straightforward what we need to do to keep it up. Um, things like with 5S, we know we need to have some kind of audit process to make sure that that's sustained. So and areas like that. So here's some real life examples of what I would consider to be a low complexity problem. So we need to organize our workplace. We can't find the tools that we need to do our job. 5S is a great solution for that. We've got mixed parts, a mixed parts issue that came up with our customer. Um, we know what happened. We, we, you know, somehow we know exactly what the root cause was for that. It may have been a one-time issue. Uh, may not need an A3 for that. An A3 may be helpful, but if we kind of know what the root cause was, we can just go ahead and attack that. Setup reduction. So there's a great tool out there called SMED, which stands for Single Minute Exchange of Dye. It's really the industry standard in terms of a process to use for reducing your initial setup times on a machine. Um, you could just go ahead and use SMED. You don't necessarily need to have an A3 for that. Now, after you do the initial SMED event and you pick some of the low-hanging fruit, some of those more complicated gains might be appropriate to use an A3 on, but the initial effort, probably SMED, is just good enough. All right, so we've got some best hygiene practices that we found in one hospital. We've got a similar hospital and a different network, perhaps. Probably don't need an A3 for that. We just need to replicate and adjust what we did at one hospital with another hospital. We talked about the min-max system. Great opportunity to use Kanban. So key point, you can apply A3 to these low complexity problems. It will work in this situation, but you may be putting in more effort than what's needed to actually fix the problem, especially if you've already got a good idea of the solution. Um, an A3 at that point is almost, I'm not gonna say it's pointless, but it definitely has less meaning if you, how do you do a root cause analysis when you know what you're going to do anyway, right? You're kind of just checking the box at that point. So let's talk about our high complexity problems. I've certainly run into a few of these in my work and an A3 could have been used for them, but it's gonna need a lot of supporting documentation. It's gonna be very high, difficult to distill all the information into one document. So let's look at what some of the criteria are for these high complexity problems. So key part, just like with the A3s, we don't know what the solution is. And we know that there's gonna be a lot of effort or long-term effort or both that's gonna be required in finding it. So if we're developing a new model vehicle, for example, um, we know that's gonna be a couple year long process. You know, and One single A3 to cover that entire process and the amount of effort and work that goes into it may not be the most appropriate tool. We have a lot of data that we need to plug through or it's very difficult to analyze or quantify. You're going to need a lot of supporting documentation to show how you analyze that data. A3 may be a little bit too much of a simplistic tool to really show some of the nuance that goes behind that. 
So our root causes are highly complex. So we're talking about interactions, multi-factor um, issues and things like that. Um, those are where you're gonna maybe wanna use a DOE or something like that. A3 may not be the best tool for kind of visually showing the work that's been done there. We've tried A3s in the past to, try to solve this problem. It's highly complicated, lots of factors involved. May not want to, again, what's the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Might be time to, to pull out a more complicated um, problem solving process. So some examples of high complexity problems. We've got new software that we need to develop and we've got to test it before we bring it out to the public. Uh, it's a long-term process. You might want to use something like Agile or a different type of methodology for solving that problem. We're trying to optimize a hospital schedule and it's complicated because we have a highly variable patient workload. Um, unfortunately, patients don't go to the hospital, you know, on a nice uh, even, even time basis. You know, it's very variable. So that could be something that's a little bit more complex than what an A3 might be able to handle. All right, we've got to select some new power control equipment for our facility. I had a problem like this when we were looking at different um, digital equipment to purchase um, for a location, and we had to evaluate five or six different machines. And it was a we used a selection matrix process, um, and it would be very difficult to show that with an A3. We certainly could have distilled down the highlights, but it really wasn't the best um, type of method to use for that process. All right, chemical reactions, those guys are kind of complicated. So in this situation of analyzing it for a pharmaceutical application, A3 is probably not, just not the, not the most complicated nuanced tool that you need for doing that. Mating component tolerance stack-up issues. Now, I did use an A3 on this when we had an issue like this um, at Toyota, but I will say there was probably there was a big PowerPoint deck behind it showing um, all of the analysis and, and the Excel, um, Excel analysis that we had done behind that. All right, we want to develop a predictive model, a regression model for SAT passage rates. A little bit more complicated than what, what an A3 might be helpful for guiding us through. So you can use A3s on these problems. Just expect that there's going to be a lot of detail behind it, and you may have to have some supplementary, supplementary information that's supporting that, um, that A3. You can use it, just uh, use it with some caution. Understand it may not be um, the, the overarching only tool that you use for solving these problems. You can also use a parent-child A3 approach. So you might have a parent A3 that's kind of guiding the whole process. So for the example of the new model vehicle development, we might have a parent A3 that's more of a strategic A3. So it's kind of describing, all right, overall, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's how we're going to solve it. You know, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to determine a better electronic system to meet our customer needs. And we might have a child A3 around that. So what are the problems that the customers are having with the electronic system? And that would be your child A3 that kind of um, that let, leads up, cascades down from the parent A3. So that's an example of kind of a parent-child A3 process, um, especially for these type of more complex A3s that you might be using, you definitely need to have a coach, especially the first time that you're walking through them. I would even say, even for someone like me who's done dozens of A3s, I get a coach whenever I can, but certainly for a more complicated one like this, I'm going to want to have a coach, um, someone to kind of bounce this off of and to guide me through the process. All right, so A3 problems, what do these look like? Well, it doesn't clear, but kind of process of elimination, right? It doesn't fit clearly into the low or high complexity criteria. 
key point here, the solution is unknown. If you know what the, the solution is and how you're going to solve it and make sure you really do, A3 is not going to help you, right? A3 is all about exploration and investigation and trying to find those solutions. You're going to want to scope the problem appropriately. Um, I do a lot of coaching with my green belts, and they, oftentimes I have to coach them about not boiling the ocean. Um, they'll, they'll try to tackle these problems. We want to reduce the plant defects by 90%. That's a great goal to have in maybe a year, but maybe what over the next three months, what do we think we could reasonably reduce those defects by? So scope it appropriately. We need to have long-term sustainable countermeasures. So this is some, not something that we want to be repeating six months from now, right? We need, and A3s will really help guide us towards what those sustainable countermeasures would be. So some examples of A3s, a high rate of errors in our billing invoice process. Right, we don't know where those errors are coming from. We want to reduce them, perfect A3 problem. After we talked about this already with the setup reduction, we're trying, we've already picked the low hanging fruit. Now we're gonna go after some of the higher hanging fruit um, that are a little bit more difficult to, to seek out and to countermeasure. A3s are a great tool for that. We've got elderly patient falls at a hospital. That's obviously not a good condition. And you know our target there would obviously be zero falls and A3s can help us guide us towards a solution for that. Customer satisfaction feedback scores have dropped at a call center. We want to reduce our temporary employee turnover rate or increasing average SAT scores for high school students. So these you can see they're distinctly more narrowly scoped than the higher complex problems that we saw before. And they're definitely more complicated and especially in terms of not knowing what the solution necessarily is as opposed to the lower complexity ones that we covered. So I would say, it, when in doubt, um, look at you look at using an A3. It, it really does cover the majority of problems that you're going to see in industries. So I would say, I, I can't throw a number out and be very certain, but I would say from what I've seen, probably 75% of the problems I've run into have been appropriate for A3s. And that's certainly going to vary depending on your industry, but, but for me, that, that's the number that I would land on. All right, so moving on to the next question. We, we had a lot of questions about what to do if leadership isn't supportive of solving the problem. And I'll say even up to two or three years ago, I would say, well, if the leadership isn't supportive of solving the problem, then move on to something else. I don't think that's necessarily the answer as I've, I've kind of matured and grown in my journey of continuous improvement. So I'll give you some strategies on what you can do if this is the case. So make sure that we've got clarity on why we're working on this problem right now. Is it aligned to our key business objectives? So if you know the leaders, we know that on their performance um, ratings, they've got something around defect reduction. You know they're probably going to be pretty aligned with doing a defect reduction project as long as it's around one of the top defects that we've got in the plant. So make sure that we're clearly aligned. We've got clear line of sight to what our key business objectives are. Make sure that we explain to the leaders what that connection is, what's in it for them. I am a very, very big proponent of pre-discussion. So this is where you sit down one-on-one -on -one with the leader, 
you know, talk with them. It's a two-way conversation. To, so I'll explain to the leader, here, here's what we're thinking about doing. What do you think about this? And these one-on-one -on -one conversations might seem like it's very basic. Um, and sometimes it's so basic that we just assume it's been done already. And that's not always the case. This truly is very important to get every leadership stakeholder um, on the same page prior to starting the A3. I can't emphasize that enough, how important that is. This is also important. So if you run into resistance with leadership after you've done the first two things here, um, don't just assume that, oh, well, they're just being resistant. They're not open to change. Use your five whys, use your root cause analysis. Try to dig down deep to understand the root cause of their resistance. And usually most resistance is, is built based on fear. So try to understand what might be causing that resistance. And here's some of the common things that I've seen in terms of why leaders might be resistant to change and, and A3 thinking. So there might be a lack of understanding around the problem. I've seen this happen. Uh, sometimes there can be chatter that goes on in the hallways and people are unclear of what the problem is and what's going on. Um, that can be a catalyst for fear. So you can mitigate that by communication and sharing so that you can make sure everyone has understanding around the problem. So lack of priority. Are we working on the right problem right now? And I have had situations where, you know, I thought I had a direction on what problem we needed to solve. But once I dug into it and talked to the leaders, I realized that wasn't the right problem to solve right now. It was a great problem, but we had some higher priorities. Don't be afraid to pivot. It's far better to pivot at the beginning of the process than to get down into the sustaining the gains phase and realize you're working on the wrong problem to begin with. So don't be afraid to adjust priorities if you need to. So lack of bandwidth. So a lot of leaders might be, they might think that this is going to require a lot of effort, a lot of time from them to support yet another initiative. One of the things I like to ask them is, you know, if we were to solve this problem, if we were to reduce these defects by 75%, is that going to make your life better? Right? Is that going to make your work easier and less frustrating? And nine times out of 10, I've, I've gotten them to, to nod their heads and say, yes, that would if you can't achieve that. Uh, so that's definitely a question that I would ask them and also make sure they understand their role in this. So it's you and your team that are going to be doing the, the bulk of the boots on the ground work. What we really need leadership for is for support and for removing obstacles when they come up. So make sure they understand that they're not the ones who have to be doing the daily work of solving this problem. They're more in a support function. You might run into a little bit of skepticism. Is this going to work? Well, we tried to solve this, you know, a year, year ago and it didn't work. What's different now? Um, I like to ask people to, you know, suspend your disbelief, you know, trust this process. It's going to require a bit of a, a leap of faith in the beginning, but explain the process to them and ask them, you know, to judge, to judge the process based on the results. It's not really fair to judge it when we haven't even evaluated whether or not it's going to work. Um, so that's something I try to use to counteract skepticism. So piggybacking on to how to get support from leadership, how do we get buy-in from our project teams, the teams that are working on the A3? This is very important. So I don't like to jump in with my teams and say, all right, we're gonna do this A3 to solve this problem. I like to think a little bit more broadly than that. And I like to, as I call it starting with why, for those of you who have seen Simon Sinek's talk, his TED talk on this, very great talk. I would highly recommend you listen to it. 
But as an example, I was tasked with going into a plant to improve the productivity. Um, they weren't doing very well. They were in, in, in danger of, of not sustaining their business. And I asked the team, the very first meeting, I asked them, I said, why am I here? And they said, well, to improve our productivity. I said, no, that's not right. I said, why do you come to work every day? And I said, well, to make money. I said, All right, why, do you make, why do you want to make money? And they said, to take care of our families. I said, okay, what if I said that we are here today together so that we can ensure security to ourselves, our jobs, and our families? And a light bulb just came on in their faces, and they were like, yeah, yeah, they, they could rally behind that why. So find, find whatever why resonates with your team, but make it bigger than just trying to move the needle on a metric. Really try to understand what's going to motivate them, and that's going to help really start to gel the team together and gain some momentum behind what you're trying to do. So you want to create a safe environment you know, based on trust. One, thing, one of the ways you can do this is, is really making sure that you establish some good guidelines and ground rules. You know, things like, you know, what we discuss in this room stays in this room until we decide that we're going to, to move it out to other areas of the plant. You know, getting to know the team members and really being transparent about your motives. That's that's very important for building trust. So don't don't push your own agenda. You know, I want this this if we solve this problem, this is going to be a great feather in my cap. I would first make sure that's not your motivation to begin with, because that will come out if it is. But be very open with them about, you know, why you're involved in this, what we're trying to accomplish. That's going to help build trust with your team. You've got to genuinely and sincerely solicit and act upon the team members' feedback. I, always, I like to tell them in the beginning, I'll say, you know, honestly, when it comes to your process, I don't know anything. I'm hoping you guys are going to teach me, but I really see you as the process experts, and I'm going to be leaning on you pretty hard as we go through this A3 process together. Um, if you need to use one-on-one -on -one conversations, if you try to draw out a team member who's being somewhat resistant during your, your team meetings, what I like to do is have a one-on-one -on -one with that team member. In one of my projects, I had a, a team member who was just you know, kind of one of those people who was sitting in the back of the room kind of glaring at me as we go through it. And so I had a one-on-one -on -one with him later. He was a supervisor in the process. And I said, you know, hey, I just want to make sure everything's okay. Like you seem like you're maybe not 100% sure about this process. And it turns out he was concerned that the fact that we were there working on his process was a negative reflection on him and his ability if there was a problem in the process. So I was able to reassure him that, no, he had been doing great work. This was kind of an effort to, to supercharge some of the things he'd been doing by giving him some extra resources. And from that point on, he was uh, completely changed. You know, he understood why we were doing it and that we weren't um, judging him or his performance. This one is one that I've really had to learn um, the hard way sometimes um, throughout the years. So as we go through the process, you know, I, I, I think, oh, I'm an engineer. I'm the one who should be solving these problems. And I'll come up with some an idea that I think is just a brilliant idea for solving the problem. And some other team members, process owners, will come up with some ideas that, from my perspective, I think they're lower benefit. It is far better, I learned, to implement an idea that is the team's, that may be lower benefit than to do a high benefit idea that is mine. And that might seem a little counterintuitive, but when you get to the point where you're sustaining the gains, we're gonna talk about ownership. And if they own that solution, if it was theirs, not mine, they are much more likely to sustain it. 
So what good is it if we implement a, a high benefit countermeasure that was mine and, and we don't sustain it because it's Jess's idea, it's not the team's idea. So be very careful about that. Um, and I've actually found that ideas that I thought were lower benefit that came from the team, I was actually completely wrong about. And that has happened, I would say, 95% of the time because they knew the process better than I did. And they were 100% right. And I was more than happy at the end to say, hey, you know what, you guys knew exactly what, what, what to do here. So I'm very, very proud of the team there. So reassure the team as well as you're moving into the countermeasure phase. There may be some anxiety about what if we implement these countermeasures and they don't work, you know, will this project be a failure? And reassure them that this is an iterative process as you're implementing these countermeasures, you're going to evaluate them. If they don't work, you'll you'll either adjust them or you'll move on to a different countermeasure, right? This is a very um, a practical process. It's not a stagnant thing. It's something that's dynamic and we change as we need to. And also give them permission to fail. So sometimes you're going to run into countermeasures and you're going to try them and they're not going to work. And that's okay. You're not placing blame on anyone for that. It's just part of the process. And if you're not failing, you're honestly, you're not trying and you're not learning. Delegate ownership of the solution. So that, that's critical for empowering the team. So I highly recommend doing that as much as you can. And remember what your role is on the team. So you're not the driver of the team. I even hesitate sometimes to use the, the term project leader. I really think of myself as a facilitator and the root word of facilitation um, is facil and that means to make easy. So I'm trying to make the team's work easy, smooth it over, give them training, give them resources, function as a guide through the process. But I let them lead this as much as possible. I try to empower them to do that. All right, so the next question that we had, how can we deal with pressure to find a quick solution? Um, those of you who work with customers, they may be very, uh, very eager for you to uh, solve the problem quickly. So what do we do about that? Now, one of the first things I do is I ask, you know, do we want to be solving the same problem six months from now, or do we want to fix it for good the first time? And the answer to that is, is usually the same. We want to fix it good. Well, to do that, we have to go slow. Understand the difference between fast and slow thinking. So A3 process is engaging the rational mind. And when we're able to do that, we're gonna, it's gonna lead us to more robust solutions that are going to prevent this problem from recurring again. Highly recommend this third one here. So especially if you've got quality defect issues or something that happened that, that is a very big problem that blew up and you'd like to use an A3 on it, implement a short-term countermeasure to stop the bleeding. But as you go through the process, this is going to buy you some time. So things like if you need to go on to 100% sort because you've got a defective product, well, do it because that's what you need to do to protect the customer while you figure out what the root cause was and you countermeasure it. So don't be afraid to use short-term countermeasures as a temporary fix until you find a more long-term countermeasure. So emphasize with whoever is kind of pressuring you that these multiple PDCA processes are incorporated into the A3 process um, for the purpose of making sure that we can validate that they actually have an impact on the results. I find that communicating um, with stakeholders about the progress of the A3 using the A3 storyboard, a lot of times when people are pressuring you to find a quick solution, what they really want is to know that there's action going on around the problem. So if you can use the storyboard to show, okay, we are making progress, we're moving towards a solution, that can help kind of, um, kind of calm them that you are working on it. 
So this question five piggybacks onto this too. So how do we keep from jumping to conclusions about the root causes? And we talked about this before. You have to go slow to go fast. Take time to go deep into the problem. Once we find what we think are root causes, we want to make sure we use data to validate that that is actually the case. Right? We don't want to just theorize about what the root causes are. We want to validate them. I highly recommend following a structured process. So this is going to prevent you. You don't want to necessarily go to your team and say, OK, what do you guys think is causing this? Um, you'll get you know, two or three answers, and the group will kind of feel pressure to go along with those answers. And that might not be the true root cause. And we now have explored all of the options. So the categories that we like to brainstorm around with the fishbone diagram, and I'll show you an example of a fishbone diagram in a moment. So for manufacturing processes, we like to use the six M's. So those stand for manpower, method, machine, material, measurement, and mother nature. For more transactional or administrative processes, you can use people, process, procedure, and policy. Um, there's other categories as well. If you just do an internet search, you can see some other categories that might apply more to your process, but you want to use some kind of structure like this. And an actual fishbone diagram, so to show you how this actually works in real life. So we would brainstorm around each category with the team. Each category needs to have at least two to three potential root causes. Remember, at this phase, we're not saying that these are the root causes, but we're saying these are potential root causes. And you want to do two to three to prevent groupthink, kind of around um, going down a path of only one or two categories. We want to make sure we explore all the options, really engage that creative thinking process. So here's an example of a, um, a handwritten a fishbone diagram here. So the problem we're having, say we're, we're, we're a coffee, large coffee shop, which will go unnamed, but their coffee is too bitter. So we brainstorm around each one of these six um, potential root cause categories. So going through one of them, um, for manpower, we might see that lack of training could be a potential cause for that. And perhaps we have lack of standardized work. So different people are making it differently each time. If we look into the machine, there's a couple of root causes around that, potential root causes. The coffee machine may be malfunctioning, or perhaps the grinder isn't grinding out adequately. If we look in the bottom right-hand corner around Mother Nature, uh, maybe there's more humidity in the air, and that's affecting uh, the moisture content in the coffee beans. Or chemicals in the water, perhaps, is affecting um, the taste of the coffee as well. So you can see how this goes. You know, around each one, you may have you know, up to 10, 12 possible root causes. And then as a team, you want to kind of narrow down which ones you think that you want to pursue to, to use the data to see if there's any validity behind that being um, the root cause for the problem you're having. So diving a little bit deeper, so we might take one of these root causes and we want to make sure we ask the five whys to make sure that we've actually truly distilled down to what the root cause is. So there's a difference between symptomatic and true root causes. So in really using the five why process, as you're going through the five whys and you land on those intermediate root causes, we call those the symptomatic ones. But when you get to the point where you cannot ask why anymore, it doesn't really make logical sense, then you know you've found what the potential true root cause is. So what does this look like? And again, it doesn't have to be five times. So ask why as many times until you get to that true root cause. Key point here, we're asking why. We're not asking who. 
So an example of this, I had um, a supplier who submitted a five whys analysis for a defect we had. And the why that, that this person landed on was that the operators were not trained adequately. And I rejected that because I said, you need to go a little bit deeper. Why were the operators not trained at, at, adequately, adequately the first time? How do I know they're going to be adequately trained the second time? So we really wanted to distill down deeply with these. So for an example from our previous slide here on the fishbone diagram, one of the potential root causes was the coffee grinder was not grinding adequately. So that's, we want to ask why. So why wasn't it grinding adequately? Well, turns out the beans were too large and tough. All right, well, why were they too large and tough? Well, there were climate changes where the beans were grown. And if I was to ask, you know, why were there climate changes where the beans were grown? It's kind of absurd to ask that question. It, it, there just were, but how, what, how are we going to countermeasure it? What are we going to do about that? Maybe we need to have a holding area where we can regulate the moisture content of the beans or something like that. Another one, so we have a long cycle. This is actually a real life one I worked on. So we had a long cycle time for PO approvals, purchase order approvals. Uh, why? There are many layers of approvals. It would have been easy to stop there and say the countermeasure is to remove the layers of approvals, but let's dig a little deeper. So why? Um, there was a lack of confidence in the purchase order accuracy. And the reason there was a lack of confidence is because we had a high error rate. Kind of makes sense. And so why do we have a high error rate? The input was not standardized. We had no standard work around entering these POs. So the countermeasure is not necessarily to remove those layers of approval right away. It's to standardize the input to the PO so that we don't have such an error rate, so that people are more confident in the output, so we don't need to have as many layers of approvals. Um, this is a great kind of a whiteboard example that I like to use as well, but for those uh, who are listening or in the healthcare world, obviously giving a patient the wrong medication is a big problem. But as we drill down to this, and I'll let you kind of follow it um, here as you can see it laid out, we find out that the root cause was that the handwriting on the prescription was very difficult to read because it was written out. So the countermeasure for that was to actually type the orders. You can see here where, how we use the 5Y process here to really drill down to true root cause. So brainstorming techniques, whether around root cause identification or countermeasure identification, so make sure the team deeply understands the problem, go to the GEMBA, establish some brainstorming guidelines with the team, such as no idea is too big, too small, or too crazy. I like to say there's two different kinds of changes that we make. One is called Kaizen, so those are the small incremental changes, and those are good. But there's another kind of change that's less, uh, less talked about in the industry, and that's Kaikaku. So those are those very large, innovative changes, big breakthroughs. So we want to look at both of these, right? Both may have some uh, potential for impact. We want to respect the input of all in the room. So I like to bring in someone who doesn't understand the process, like me, but someone else as well, and also bring in some fresh out, some uh, process experts as well. So between the two of those, you're going to get a nice mix of ideas. During the initial brainstorming session, we don't judge or evaluate the ideas. That comes next, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But we want to we don't want to shut people down by judging their ideas right away. We just want to bring out as many as possible. I recommend brainstorming around the categories that we just discussed, the six M's or four P's. I also like to provide a measure of anonymity in the idea generation, um, particularly if leadership is involved. Um, but even if they're not involved, you'll have some people who aren't comfortable, you know, having their name associated with an idea. So the process that I'm going to walk you through in a moment really lays out how to do that. 
So here's how I like to brainstorm with my teams. I use this for almost every project and it works very well. Um, so we put the identified root causes on a flip chart. We have each team member brainstorm some solutions in silence. So I give them about 10 minutes to do so and they write down one idea per post-it note or sticky note. Place all the notes on a wall after we collect them. So we're gonna read each one aloud to make sure we understand what the, what the note is saying and combine duplicate ideas. So there's only one idea per post-it note, no duplicates. Something we call affinitizing. So we're gonna group those ideas by categories into logical categories with the team. So we can use selection methods such as nominal group technique or multi-voting. And if you do an internet search on any of those, they're just different ways of voting. So we can identify what the top potential solutions are. And we narrow them further. I like to do this with my teams. This kind of helps them as the, to guide them through the process when we're doing the final selection and the ideas. But I use a benefit effort matrix. So on the x-axis, we've got the effort, low, medium, and high. On the y-axis, low, medium, and high benefit. And then each idea we go through and I just talk with the team, hey, is it gonna be a lot of effort, or a lot of cost to do this, you know, high, medium, low, what do you think the benefit's gonna be? As you can see here on the chart, we wanna stick to, to ideas that are in the, the green zone, maybe that middle yellow one is, as well. So stay away from the, the areas that are in the red zone. So we don't wanna work on a, an idea that's low benefit, but high effort. And this really helps to guide them and at the end, as far as countermeasures, we want to pick our top three to five. I don't recommend any more than that. It can be a, a bit of a, it's just, just you disperse the team's efforts if you've got too many countermeasures that you're trying to try. So I definitely recommend no more than three to five at the end. So next question, what are some recommendations for handling resistance to new improvements if and when it occurs? And it usually does. So the first thing to do is to understand that there's a spectrum of responses to change from people who are impacted by it. So the bottom 10% of people are just gonna be your high resistors. You know, no matter what you're trying to do, they're gonna be against it, right? That, that's, we've all seen that. I would say it's usually about the 10% of people respond like that. And the upper side, you've got the people who are gung-ho about the change, they're excited to do it. Hopefully they're, they're, some of those are people on your project team. And then you've got people in the middle where the majority of folks, 80%, you know, they're, they're a little skeptical. They're not necessarily against the change, but they wanna evaluate the results and then they'll make a judgment. So if we understand that distribution, we can understand how to react for it. And remember the root cause to resistance is not just because someone's trying to be difficult. I've I rarely found that to be the case. There's usually some kind of fear-based um, fear-based motivation behind that resistance. So understanding that can really help you have a more compassionate view and help you possibly bring that person who might be in the bottom 10%, you might be able to bring them into a different category. I've actually, in some of my teams, we've been able to bring these high resistors into the top 10% and they become some of the biggest advocates for the change. So remember these responses are dynamic, they will change over time. You may have people who are skeptical about it, but as time goes on and they see the benefit of the change, they may move into that category and that top 10% may actually be your top 50%. So this having an idea of this response distribution has gives you an idea of how to mitigate it. So prevention and reaction to resistance. This term called Nemawashi, um, I learned at Toyota. I absolutely love it. I use it all the time. So it's really, if you think of it as like priming the pump or preparing the soil, I will spend a lot of time doing this. So pre-discuss with everyone who might be impacted by the change. 
And this is a two-way dialogue, so this is not just me telling them what the change is going to be. I tell, start by telling them what the change is, why we're making the change, but then I give them an opportunity to give me feedback. And if that feedback is relevant, I will incorporate that into the change after discussing with the team, because there may have been something that we didn't consider. And it also help you understand the root cause behind the resistance. So use questions, say, hey, you know, it looks like, are you kind of uncertain about how this is, this is going to go? You know, is there, anything, is there any way that we can give you some information or what are your concerns? You know, ask questions about it. I use this heavily at Toyota, um, especially as, you know, being in quality engineering, we made a lot of changes to try to improve some issues that we were having. And I would go talk, I'd go talk with the guys in body weld that were impacted, the guys in paint, you know, at the guys on assembly. I'd talk with all those folks to make sure they understood what was going on. So again, if you run into resistance, very good chance that the root cause is fear. So how do we antidote fear? Well, knowledge. So that's one of the biggest countermeasures that they understand the change. That's going to help, um, help to kind of ease their minds more about what, what is happening. Inclusion, so make them feel like they're part of the change, that their input is being considered and you will adjust based on what they tell you. So adapt, you know, reassure them that this is not permanent. You know, if it doesn't work, we will we'll go back, we'll find a different solution. So we're going to need your ongoing feedback with that. So if they know that the change is based on the results and it's not necessarily permanent, that will go a long way towards reassuring them. And then finally, give them ongoing support. So don't just make the change and kind of uh, let them let them loose with it and say, yeah, good luck with that. Hope it works out for you. Uh, make sure you're, you're providing ongoing support for them. So opportunities, ask them how things are going, you know, give them opportunity to be able to contact you if something's not going well. So this is something called the ADCR change management model. Um, it's just a great kind of a process to go through when you're making a change to help guide you through change communication. So the first thing you need to do obviously is understand what the change is, but then who is impacted by this change? All right, so we need to know who we're gonna need to talk to. So desire, so we need to explain the change to people, explain how it's gonna benefit them and our organization. The next thing is knowledge. So we need to do some training. I, I recommend you, know, you want to do verbal training as well as written training, um, but also you need to verify that the change is understood and applied. So, you know, after we do the training, how do I know that you understood it? And I like to think of us functioning as coaches. So a coach might explain to players here, here's how we're going to make this play. But then what do they do? They go out and practice and the coach watches them to make sure they really understood how to do it. That's an important part of training that I think we miss sometimes in industry. And then again, reinforcement. So give them resources and adapt as needed as you go through this. So the ADCAR change management model is really a helpful process to guide you through change management. So the final question, how do you follow through on actions and accountability and sustaining the gains? I really like to, instead of saying accountability, I like to call it ownership, because if you own something, by default, you're accountable for it, whereas accountability can sometimes have a negative connotation. So I like to use the word ownership. It's important you have some kind of system for managing these sustainment activities, something documented that you can refer back to a living document, whether it be a project plan, a control plan, which we'll go over in a moment, whatever system you have, use it consistently. Only assign one owner per action item. So you all probably know what happens when you assign two or three people to an action item. They all assume the other person is doing it, right? So they can delegate the work, but ultimately that person is responsible for the results. 
So thoroughly communicate the what and why, but I like to let the owners determine the how and when. So I'm not going to tell them how to do it, but I'm going to tell them that, hey, it needs to be done. All right, we all agree on that. But they're going to tell me the how and the when. And we might have a, a two-way conversation negotiating a little bit on that sometimes, but I like to incorporate them into that. So you've got to have some kind of follow-up um, on a predetermined frequency. Hey, weekly, we're going to check back in, see how things are going, evaluate the results, right? But it's got to be something consistent. So you've got to lead by example. If you've got an ownership item on that sustainment, even if it's just the one who's keeping track of the project um, action tracker, make sure you own your stuff, right? It's kind of hard to tell people that they need to be um, owners and accountable for something when you're not doing it yourself. We've got to make the progress visible. We need to understand how are we impacting that metric that we said was so important. I, I like to use control charts, um, a Six Sigma tool, because that will tell us whether or not something is truly moving in a direction one way or another, or if it's just random chance. It's a good tool for doing that. And there's a lot of resources out there on control charts. I, I always use the question, how can I help? You know, if they're struggling or even just at the onset of assigning the action item, I say, what do you need from me in order for you to be successful? This is very important. When gaps occur between what our target is and um, what our actual condition is, don't start with judging. Right? Start with asking why. There may be a legitimate reason. It may be giving us some invaluable information about our process. You know, maybe one of our countermeasures wasn't as robust as we thought it was. So start with asking why. Maybe they need more support or resources um, before you jump right to judging. And again, recognize achievements. Sustaining is difficult. So you know, after kind of the initial um, fanfare around the A3 has somewhat subsided, you want to make sure that we keep celebrating that we're sustaining the results that we that we achieved in the beginning. So lastly here on this section, so control plans, I like to use these at the end of my projects. I, I make all of my, my green belts use these as well, but they help ensure robust follow through. It, they establish the what, who, when, and trigger points for action. So we don't wanna necessarily wait until we're not meeting our target before we take action, but we can set, so if we're within eight, if we um, slide more than 20% below our target, then we're gonna take action to bring it back up. You know, it's something, something to that, to that effect. So this is an example of a control plan here. So we, we might have the countermeasures under the topic here, the things that we did that we're measuring, you know, to ensure success. We'll have a metric, right? How are we measuring these? So these are what we call leading metrics. So this might not be our overall metric for this project here was the plant productivity. But these are the things that we're doing to ensure that we get to that productivity. We've got our trigger for action, who's responsible, Right, and we've got our schedule for when we're deploying these as well. It doesn't have to look exactly like this, but it should have some of the components, most of the components on this on your control plan. All right, so in conclusion, so consider the complexity of your problem when choosing an approach. Um, when in doubt, you know, try something, right? See if it works, adjust if it's not the right tool. When you get um, lack of support or resistance, attempt to deeply understand the root cause and mitigate that. Remember, most, most negative responses are based on fear. When you're trying to get buy-in, start with why and be sincere about engaging the team. I highly recommend using collaborative brainstorming methods. I didn't do this in the beginning. I relied a lot on data analysis when I was starting out my continuous improvement journey and kind of me trying to figure out what the solutions and countermeasures were. Um, my, the success of the projects I worked on 
increased exponentially after I started bringing in the team to really help drill down to these. So collaboration here is truly key. Maintain discipline in the process, go through the steps in order and resist that pressure to jump to conclusions, right? It, if you jump to the wrong conclusion, and you most likely will, you're gonna be trying to solve this problem again. You're gonna waste a lot of time and effort. So better to invest that effort in the front end. Use Nemawashi, that pre-discussion, to prevent and react to resistance. Love this tool, highly recommend that you use it with discipline. Focus on that ADCAR model for the thorough and effective change management. Again, using your Nemawashi and pre-discussion heavily. And for sustainment, focus on that ownership versus strictly accountability. Really, really delegate fully to people who are owning sustainment of the gains. And finally, my, my strongest piece of advice is to remember it's progress over perfection. Your first day three is not going to be perfect. My last day three wasn't perfect. Um, it's going to be better than if you hadn't used any structured process at all while trying to solve the problem. So don't be afraid to jump in and try it. And that's all I have, Clint. So over to you. Well, actually, just a couple more things. So just some further resources on A3 thinking. Um, a couple of these I mentioned last time, managing to learn is a great one. Um, one I actually just read, which was fantastic, it has a section on A3s, is Developing Lean Leaders at All Levels by Jeffrey Liker. We talked about Tracy and Ernie Richardson's the Toyota Engagement Equation already. And then for building teams and really fostering collaboration, I highly recommend The Speed of Trust by Stephen R. Covey. That was just a, a very good book for that. Um, you can connect with me on my website, yokotenlearning.com, Y-O-K-O-T-E-N, learning.com. I've also got coaching available through that site if you're interested. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, and then my email is there as well. And with that, Clint, this time for real, I will turn it over to you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jess. Certainly appreciate the time. It looks like we've gotten through everyone's questions. If if uh, if you don't mind, let me race through some just uh, some quick announcements. Uh, before we sign off, because we are getting uh, close to the top of the hour. Our next webinars are, to, uh, of course, keep an eye on your email, our blog, uh, our podcast, and the Kinex's webinar page for a little bit more information. We should have those dates up and announced very soon. Uh, for more information and learning, you can always visit the Kinex's website, follow our continuous improvement blog, and, of course, subscribe to the Kinex's podcast via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or however else uh, the kids are doing it these days. Uh, we are at the top of the hour, though, Jess. We, we did manage to get through everybody's questions. So I do want to thank you again for the time today. Uh, a quick reminder to all attendees, a, a recording of this webinar and a link uh, with the slide deck will be sent to you tomorrow via email. If you have any problems, just reach out to the Kinexus team. Happy to help uh, make sure that you guys get that stuff. Um, again, thanks, everyone, for your time. Jess, thanks so much for doing part two. My pleasure. Thanks, Clint. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> All right. Keep improving, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day.